Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Sip and Scholar, a podcast where we uncork new knowledge. Today, I am joined by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Rachel Bauer. She is an associate professor of teacher education in mathematics. She has over 22 years of experience in the field of math, and we uncork facts about mathematics, such as the correlation that math and counting with fingers has. We also talk about fixed mindsets when it comes to math and what we can do to change that. And finally, we open up a really nice can of wine and share that together. Dr. Bauer is someone that really reminds me of Bobby Siegel. Now, who is this person? If you've watched one of my favorite shows, which I highly recommend you watch too, The Indian Matchmaker on Netflix, he is this single guy, I think he's from London, he's a math teacher, and his passion about math is very apparent. I remember when I first saw that episode, I texted Dr. Bauer and I was like, oh my god, this is the male version of you. (laughs) We laughed about that because they both share a passion about math that I really think is infectious, it's very knowledgeable, and I know that all of you would like to learn about too. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for coming to my bar, Dr. Bauer. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me to your bar. It's a real pleasure to be here. (laughs) You've been here many, many times, so I'm sure... It feels quite different this time around. I have been to this bar many times. (laughs) Okay, so tell us, first of all, we got to start with the drink that you brought for us today. It's called Simpler Brand Wines Rosé. Can you tell us where you got this? Uh, Yes, this is Simpler Wines, and I got it at Trader Joe's. It comes in different varieties. This is the rosé. It is sparkling, and uh, you can get a four-pack for about $5. Oh, that's pretty good. It is, I think so. It's made in Italy, and as you know, I'm not a connoisseur of food or beverages, so I don't want the listeners to take this to heart, but I don't really like this. (laughs) And I'm trying to get rid of it. And Dr. Mari, I tried to abandon it at her house about a month ago, and she made me take it home, so I don't think she really likes it either. No, I do like it. And for all my amazing viewers, look, I'm even going to give you a little bit of ASMR over here. What a sound. What a sound. Let's see. Yeah, how can we describe the flavor? Um, It's very sparkly. Very. I mean, I like it. It's mild. It's not overly flavored. Yeah, I feel like this is like perfect for tubing, which is something I haven't done in... um, in years. Last time I went tubing was like seven years ago in Texas. But still, great times, you know, tubing along. 10% alcohol by volume. Mm. A little mathematics to start us off. 10% alcohol, that's pretty high. It is high. It is high. She even brought a third one that I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to go this way. <laughs> okay, so thank you for coming. I wanted to, you know, just for you to tell us a little bit about yourself what you do. I mean, I already you know, told everyone you're an associate professor of teacher education, but what are, what are other things about yourself that you would like to share? I am an associate professor of teacher education, and this is my 22nd year as a math educator. So right now, for the last six years, I've been preparing future K through 12 math teachers, and it is really an honor to do this kind of work. 
previously, I was a high school math teacher. I also worked at an educational software company. And then along the way, I got uh, my master's degree and then my PhD. So now I get to work with you. Yay! Which is pretty great, preparing uh, all these great math teachers. Um, in our state, we have licenses at the K through eight level. So that's one cohort of students. And then we also have the secondary math and science, which is grades seven through 12. And something that's super interesting, well, that I love to brag about, but we both got tenured at the same time this year. So cheers to that, friend. Yay! Bam. We did the thing. We did the thing. And with over 20, how many years? 20? 22 years. That is, that's a lot. That's amazing. <laughs> I know I look young, everyone. <laughs> that's awesome. So the first question that I have for you is actually something that I feel like I used to say a lot before I met Dr. Bauer and I really started changing those math mindsets that I used to have. So for example, I used to say a lot like, you know, I, I don't really need geometry. So why am I spending a year of high school doing this? Right. Or like, when am I ever going to use math in real life, especially when we have calculators, you know, I'm recording this podcast on an iPhone, all iPhones come with calculators. Like we have all these tools, right. And I think it is very common for us to to hear that perspective about mathematics. Why why do I need to know this if I can just use a calculator, for example? Well, mathematics is more than just a calculator because if you don't know what to do with the calculator, it's not going to help you very much. So there is that aspect of formulating a problem that you're going to try to solve and that's not going to use the calculator. The calculator might come in at the end but there are steps that you need to take to, to identify the problem and then try to solve it. Uh, I have a lot of students, of course my students are adults now, and by the time they get to me, they have, even if they don't have a great relationship with mathematics, they have come to realize that it is a part of their everyday lives. And of course they are going to become teachers, and so they do see the value in learning mathematics. But uh, I have also worked with children in K through 12, a few years ago, I was teaching sixth grade, and um, children will definitely express that they won't need math because of you know this reason and that reason. And part of that is just children being rebellious, or you know they don't have as much life experience as the rest of us, and so whatever they uh, you know whatever they have experienced as, as a ten year old, maybe that's what they imagine going forward in the future. So, uh, you know, those kind of conversations, I think, with children are a little bit more, um, I don't know, tongue-in-cheek, perhaps. Um, we do, as educators, want children to understand the value of the mathematics that they're learning and why it is important in different ways that they can use it. I do believe, personally, that you do use mathematics in your life and you also, you will use mathematics to the level that you know it. Mm -hmm. So I've been able to use mathematics to solve problems um, because I have that tool in my toolbox. So I remember one time my brother was building a shed and I had to help him with the trigonometry so that he got the roof right. Mm. Other people that didn't uh, do that level of math or remember that level of math, I don't know, I guess their shed could end up wonky. So I definitely believe that that is what happens and as a society, is that whatever level of math you 
have achieved or you feel comfortable using, that's what you're going to use in your life. And the rest of it, you know, it could make your life a little bit more difficult. You might have to get someone else to help you build your shed. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. And I also think that math is one of those um, content areas that gives people just a general anxiety, right? And um, it's interesting because I see, for example, now my daughter who's two and a half and she's counting really more reciting one to 10, but there's that, like that excitement about mathematics. It becomes really fun. And then as we grow older, I think that anxiety level rises more. And I remember, um, as a child, for example, being told, don't use your fingers while you're counting. And now as an adult, I think I'm almost kind of even embarrassed to do something like that. So when I'm out and about and I, and I need to, and I'm doing some sort of mathematics and I'm using fingers, like you'll see me under the table go like one, two, three, four, five, right? So my question to you is, I think I, I recognize that this is a common misunderstanding about mathematics. So what, why is using fingers okay? Or what would you say someone who thinks that using fingers to count, for example, is problematic. So I know a lot of people as adults will tell me that when they were children, they were discouraged from using their fingers. They were told, you know, you're too old for that. Uh, and then I also know a lot of adults that still use their fingers and they do try to do it secretly because they feel some kind of shame mm -hmm. associated with doing math with their fingers. Uh, and actually, I think it's a pretty great thing to do math with your fingers. Uh, there is some research that shows, um, so let me, let me go back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yesterday I was talking to a student and she asked me, who discovered math? It's a pretty mm, that's... It's a broad question. <laughs> it is, wow. And I said, well, it wasn't discovered, uh, I'm sorry, she said, uh, she said, who invented math? And I said, well, it wasn't invented, it was discovered. And it was discovered by all of all civilizations. Because as soon as you realized catching two fish was better than catching one fish, you have done some mathematics and you're going to start, you know, giving terms to those ideas. And then, and then people were counting and they were counting in different ways. Different civilizations were counting the fish they caught in different ways. Um, a lot of us are familiar with Roman numerals. Mm. A lot of us maybe are familiar with binary numbers because that's the language of computers. And there's a lot of other number systems as well. Different civilizations came up with different number systems. And the one we use today is the Hindu Arabic number system, which is a base 10 number system. That means it uses 10 different symbols, zero through nine, to make all of the numbers. And it's structured such that groups of 10 are very important. So why do you think we have a base 10 number system, Vanessa? Because we have 10 fingers? Yeah, so early, oh, really? so early civilization <laughs> said, I've got these 10 fingers, this is going to help me do some counting. Oh, wow. I know. And there actually were some civilizations that were a base 20 because they had fingers and toes. But oh. all of these different numbers that were different systems that were, were um, used, the base 10 is the one that rose to the surface and that's the one we use uh, most of the time today, there are some number systems used in other ways. But base 10 number system, we have 10 fingers, and there are, is some evidence that when you are doing mathematics, your, the part of your brain that is related to fingers will activate. So I think there's something very primal and instinctual inside humans to associate counting and math with their fingers. 
That's so fascinating. This is the first time I'm learning about this. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's great because uh, there's so much more technology now that allows us to see what the brain is doing. That's a very recent mm -hmm. discovery that we can look at things in the brain. And that's something that um, Joe Bowler talks about. So Joe Bowler is a very famous mathematics educator from Stanford University. And there is a video on YouTube where she discusses this research that uh, the brain is activating when we're doing math, the part of your brain that associates with fingers. So we should not discourage children or adults from using their fingers because that's that's keeping them from doing what they're instinctually supposed to. Well, I want to do a cheers to counting with fingers. Cheers, ah! do it. There's actually a lot, and it's actually been, even though it has been discouraged counting with fingers, there's a lot of, um, uh, correct, I don't want to say curriculums, but there are things that children can be taught that emphasize using the fingers. So in the 70s uh, from Korea, there was a system called Chisenbop, and that was teaching kids to add and subtract just using their fingers. Um, you can also find that on YouTube. There's examples of kids doing chisenbop. There are um, other tricks that a lot of people know the nines trick, multiplying in your nines. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a hand trick for that. There's actually hand tricks for um, at least half of the times tables you can use your fingers. So I encourage people to look those up on uh, YouTube to see those. So there is definitely even though it is discouraged, at the same time, there are ways to encourage people to use their fingers. Yeah, and I wish I knew about all those different strategies because I learned Me too. to. Yeah, I, when I learned to multiply, I I think I was just regurgitating that on my mind. Like I would write it on the back of a math test, like just every table and every number, because that's how I, you know, I just memorized it. So even now as an adult, if Rachel sometimes, you know, when we're drinking, she'll say like, "Oh, what's this by this?" and I'm like, "Oh, girl, like I do not know." <laughs> variety test but i do not recommend it because it is not valid it, no it's not it's quite um it's not valid with me at all <laughs> but yeah that's awesome so the next question that i have for you when you were learning mathematics how was that experience for you so i i very much uh focused my attention on mathematics a long time ago so i definitely feel like a one-trick pony most of the time it's really the thing I know the most about, but when I was a young person, I I did well in school academically and all my subjects, which, you know, looking back, I think is good because you need to have writing skills and communication skills and ability to research uh, if you're going to be a mathematician. Um, but surprise, surprise, mathematics was my worst subject when I was growing up. I, it was my biggest struggle and I got my worst grades in it and I think that is partly why I kept pursuing it because it really bothered me that I couldn't figure it out. Hmm. I guess that's a personality trait. <laughs> so I, that, cha that challenge kind of kept me going and now here I am today. And you know, I say it's a personality trait, everyone has a different personality. Some mm -hmm. people don't want to go towards the thing that uh, challenges them, some people find the thing that they uh, makes them feel comfortable and that's what they want to do. So mm -hmm. everyone has to find their own thing. But I think it's very important to be well-rounded because yeah. you're going to need all of those skills in the future. Yeah. And I also, as we're having this conversation, I'm going back to like my high school years and I remember um, like the advanced placements for mathematics. I, um, I was always like, I think, I don't want to say good or bad, but mathematics I did, I did score well, but um, I remember when it came to AP classes, the 
vast majority of people in those classes were men. And I think that was another reason why I didn't really even pursue that because I didn't even, I'm like, oh, I don't want to take a class with like 20 men and like five girls. And for me, you know, I had a different attitude. Whereas for you might have been more of a challenge. For me, it was like, I, I don't see myself in this space. So I never took any advanced placement mathematics. And partially, I think it's because of representation. And I do want to say, you know, I am in my 30s and Rachel Bauer is the first person that I've met that loves math and is a woman. Yeah. <laughs> and that talks about math so positively that has really even inspired my own mindset to change, right? Especially now as I'm raising my daughter, I'm definitely thinking more of like, I need to talk positively about this to not give her math anxiety. So with that question, why, you know, with that being said, why do you think so many people develop this math anxiety over time? That's a really nice segue, Dr. Mari. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you for asking that question. So you talked about um, maybe not wanting to take a class that had more male students in it. And the question comes, you know, where does math anxiety originate I'm, I'm reading this book right now, which I have not finished, but it's called Dear Math, and it's by Strong and Butterfield. And in this book, they talk about the places where our relationship with mathematics is formed. And they say that it is in three different areas. One is your home, so the things we say to children matter, mm -hmm. particularly as a mother speaking to children and speaking to uh, female children. The second place where the relationship with mathematics is formed is society. Society delivers us many messages about uh, what it means to be a mathematician or to be in STEM. And then the third place is in classrooms. Mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of things happen in classrooms. <laughs> yeah. So those things can you know, influence our relationship with the, the topic. So, um, at home, sometimes kids hear things like, uh, my student yesterday was telling me, uh, her grandmother said, uh, school doesn't matter, you need to hurry up and get married. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes women hear messages like, uh, you don't really need this. Um, it was, uh, unfortunately, sometimes parents will say, oh, math was hard for me too, so, you know, yeah. don't worry about it. So already you're setting up your child to think that it's difficult and that they, if they can't do it, if it's struggle, if it's a struggle for them, then they just kind of give up because that's the message that they've been given, right? Um, and society, of course, has a lot of negative messages <laughs> related to mathematics. So there's, a, there's an article that was published in a very prestigious uh, journal. Um, a woman, a researcher, read many, 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 many different um, books, young adult literature, mm -hmm. uh, at least a hundred. And she was looking for instances where the book talked about mathematics. And as you can imagine, they were not positive. It was, mm -hmm. you know, this math teacher's ugly, this math teacher's fat and dumb, I hate this class, I'm failing it. Um, Bobby is a nerd because he's good at math. Yeah. So many, many society gives us many messages about how math is hard, and if you're if you like it, you're a nerd. And um, if you might remember in the '90s, there was a controversy about a Barbie that talked. There was a Barbie doll that talked, and one of the things that she said was, "Math is hard." Really? Yeah. No way. Yeah. <laughs> oh and there was some. I mean, it was great. There was backlash that this was a message we were giving yeah. young girls that setting them up to believe math is something that's 
difficult and that, you know, if you find it difficult, maybe you should just not work too hard. <laughs> uh, because everything in life is difficult. Everything you want is difficult and it's going to take hard work. Um, but you can do it if you if you really want to. Yeah. Okay. Mm, that's super, super interesting. And I think it's also important to kind of think about... Um, with mathematics is something that we have to like practice often, right? I tend to think about it almost as a language where you have to be um, using it to keep it, right? So I remember I graduated high school knowing calculus. If you give me that stuff now, I haven't done it in so long that it will take me time to relearn it, right? Or at least to practice it and, and come back to it again. So I think it is important um, just to to also like, keep that in mind. How if if there's any ways that we can, as adults that might not interact with mathematics as much, to practice it. Do you do you think there like what what is something I can do though? <laughs> um, that is really important. Sometimes in high school, kids will take the minimum amount of required math because they don't really like it. Uh, so by the time they get to college, you know, they might take a few years off. By the time they get to college, they find out they have to take a college math class, and it's been years yeah. since they've done any math in school. And that, you know, you definitely forget things. You definitely have to practice um, to keep those skills up. I tell people all the time, I've definitely forgotten more <laughs> math than I know right now. But, you know, if you learn it with understanding, you can um, mm -hmm. flex those muscles and you can work back up to it. So. Okay, awesome. So the next question that I have for you has to do with fixed and growth mindset. And this is kind of like that conversation we were having of, well, I'm not good at math, right? And we use that often as a blank statement to justify not putting in the work to do something. And I remember um, like last year, there was this um, pre-service teacher that I was talking with and um, we were walking by everyone's office and then we passed by Dr. Rachel Bauer's office, which was close at the time. And then I, I stopped by and was like, oh, and this is where Dr. Bauer is. Um, she's our math educator. And she was like, oh, no, I'm really mad at math. And I'm like, oh, goodness, good thing that Dr. Bauer isn't here to listen to this. <laughs> so what can we do to kind of change that mindset? Or even if you might, you know, our listeners have children or they themselves have that fixed mindset of I'm not good at math. Is there something that we can do to to change that? I don't get my feelings hurt anymore because I've heard <laughs> that many, many times. So, you know, I'm, I'm prepared. Uh, so the idea of fixed mindset and growth mindset, it's not just about mathematics it's everywhere it's all kind it's uh, applicable to all kinds of learning and it's it's definitely I feel like it's mainstream you can go to uh, schools K through 12 campuses and you'll see those messages uh, in the building so the idea of growth mindset fixed mindset comes from a neuroscientist from Stanford named Carol Dweck and if you're interested in learning more I encourage you to go on YouTube and search out one of her TED talks where she discusses fixed mindset and growth mindset. Um, Carol Dweck worked with, or maybe still works with, Joe Bowler, who I already mentioned. Joe Bowler is a famous math educator. She wrote this book, Mathematical Mindsets, which is a great book if you have an interest in teaching or learning mathematics. Uh, this is the second edition of Mathematical Mindsets. But, oops. But what happened was Carol Dweck was interested in, in fixed mindset, growth mindset. She got together with Joe Bowler and uh, they applied it to the learning of mathematics. And they found that some students had a fixed mindset about the learning and some students had a growth mindset. So if you have a fixed mindset about math or anything else, 
it means that you believe you were born with a certain ability mm -hmm. and once you reach that plateau well that's just kind of how how much you're going to be able to do so oftentimes in school in school students will um, get to a certain place you know sometimes it's third grade with the times tables sometimes it's high school sometimes it's geometry and they'll struggle they'll struggle for the first time and they'll feel like oh i guess this is just you know how much i'm able to achieve um, and students get these messages in lots of different ways they get them from their parents um, their parents uh, parents that emphasize you know go get an a go get a go get an a uh, you're so smart you're smart 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 um, the way that we praise children matters because mm -hmm. if you are told repeatedly that you're smart you're once you start struggling you're going to be like worried oh maybe i'm not smart maybe yeah. the thing that made me smart maybe maybe that's the end of it and um so the way we praise children it has a part to play in the mindset um grades assessments has a part to play because children will get grades and then they'll they'll see that as a reflection of their um abilities um Children with a growth mindset feel like if they put in the work, if they work hard, then they will be successful. Mm -hmm. That they can grow, their brains can grow, they can learn things. Making mistakes are viewed as a learning opportunity. Um, they aren't defined by the grades that they receive. Um, that's just uh, an unfortunate consequence of going to school, is that you get grades. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, Joe Bowler talks about um, the fixed mindset and growth mindset. You know, we might have some areas of our life where we feel like we have a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. You might think, oh, I'm really good at languages or I'm really good at sports. But then there might be other areas of your life where you feel like you have a, where you have a fixed mindset. So there's always something that we can be working on. Yeah, that's really good. One of my fixed mindsets is that I'm really bad at volleyball. <laughs> yeah. I am too, but I don't worry about it. <laughs> Mine right now is crocheting. I'm really trying to uh, kill this demon that's keeping me from being good at crocheting. So. Oh, goodness. So I do want to give, as a teacher education, I do have a tip if there's any teacher out there listening to us. I remember when I was taking math, um, how we had a lot of math um, in the classroom, a lot of math competitions that were timed, right? And that was one of the things that was the most anxiety-inducing for me because it was always the same three people that would go up and get the correct answer right, right? And another very common practice that we used to do was like, let's say, student A and student B go to the board and answer this math problem and whoever answers first wins, right? And that was like the worst hour of math when I knew we we're going to do that activity because I just always knew I wasn't going to perform well or like even that embarrassment of like, oh goodness, like I'm going to be so embarrassed going up to the board and getting this wrong. So if you are a teacher educator that's listening to us or even a parent that might be doing you know, math with their child at home, consider how we can give students a little bit more time to process things, um, let them, you know, um, like I said, process the information, take their time, and with, and, um, with practice, they will get faster, right? But in a public setting like a classroom or even with a clock in front of them with a minute timer, it's not the best um, practice to do when teaching any content, especially as something that we already know can cause some anxiety for our students. Yeah, you're talking about the thing that that's something that happens in a classroom that influences our relationship with mathematics, the timed test, the embarrassed, the public embarrassment. So children will begin to believe, 
I, I don't like math. Well, it's not the math's fault. It's how this is being um, laid out in front of you. And then also contributing to a fixed mindset because they're always feeling like a failure because they're not doing it quickly. And being yeah. successful at mathematics is not about speed. Mm-hmm. Mathematicians aren't solving problems in 30 seconds. That's not an accurate representation of what it means to do mathematics. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Excellent. So the last question that I have for you today has to do with the common course stay standards for mathematics. Now, if you have read the news, you'll see that there is still confusion amongst families regarding the aims of the Common Core State Standards for Mathematics. Can you speak a little bit more about this? I can't believe it's the last question already. Yeah, I know. And I'm almost done with my first drink. And I feel like you... We have to split the last one so that we can stay and keep talking. Oh, my goodness. Um, So, a lot of people know what what Common Core refers to. Uh, in about 2010, a curriculum was written uh, about mathematics learning for grades K through 12, and it was adopted by a majority of the states and many U.S. territories. So it's been out there now for a while. But it hasn't been out there long enough for parents to have experienced it as a student, and now they have their own children in school. So there's still a disconnect between parents who are um, encountering the, what Common Core looks like for the first time. And to answer this question, I want to take a little trip back in history. <laughs> um, I think mathematics learning, probably this is true for all content areas, is, is sometimes cyclical. Um, we'll have a great new idea and it'll go on for a while and then something might happen and we'll change it and then that will go on for a while. And we, we kind of get in these cycles of learning. Um, Vanessa, I'm going to ask you a question. When you talked about having a calculator, you said you have a calculator in your phone. Do you know when calculators became mainstream? Mainstream? Okay. I actually think it was maybe the 90s. Because I, I will say 90s and only because I'm trying to think about when I first used a calculator in the classroom. And I remember when the first, we used to call them like, um, like a calculadora, like, like scientific calculator when those came out. And I feel like that, I was in high school then. Am I right? Was it in the 90s? No, it wasn't. No? But it's interesting that you're looking at it from your own life perspective. I am, yeah. yeah. Because definitely in elementary, we never used calculators. And then um, in middle school, I don't think we ever used smart calculators either. It was in high school when they started introducing them. So, and then at the, at the house, I don't think I, maybe there was one calculator that my mom had. To balance the checkbook. To, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that's why I'm like, oh, maybe it was the 90s. But now I'm thinking, was it when the phones came out? Or was it, or I'm, or I'm totally off and it was the 50s. Um. Yeah, this is a good question. I don't know if many people realize, you know, especially younger people realize when calculators became commonplace. Um, and I think it's, I think your answer is telling because we sometimes associate getting a calculator with a certain time in school. But calculators, personal calculators became common in the late 70s and 80s. Oh, hmm. Which means that everybody educated before then, no calculators. You could probably only find them at Sears. <laughs> Maybe. Um, or uh, Radio Shack. Oh, Radio Shack. Oh. So, uh, so for many, many, for all of for all of human history, until very recently, it was very, very important in math class that you could add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Because if you couldn't do it, if you couldn't get those steps down, 
what were you gonna do? There was no, they couldn't Google it, you couldn't go to your calculator. You know, there maybe some people had an abacus, maybe uh, some other uh, slide rules became popular um, in the 1900s. But, uh, you know, unless you had, unless you had uh, someone to help you or uh, one of these maybe tools, you really had to be able to do it all on your own. So for a long, long time in math education, there was a great emphasis on getting those procedures down. These are the steps to add, subtract, multiply, divide, you know, solve proportions. It was all about making you ready to be a farmer, to be a housewife, to run a store. Um, and, and maybe, you know, very, very few people back then went to college. So if you showed great aptitude and were a man, <laughs> maybe you'd get to go to school and study some more math. But for, so for a very long time, the emphasis was on just being able to do those, those important math skills by yourself with a pencil. And when I was growing up, um, my teachers were educated in those decades. So they didn't have any experience with using a calculator in an educational setting or educating somebody to live in a world without calculators. Mm -hmm. So we were very much drilled with the worksheets and the practice it a million times so you can do this procedure, do this procedure. But here we are in the 21st century and Common Core is hoping that we can uh, embrace the 21st century and that we can learn math, not just doing those procedures, because now I have a calculator to do that for me. Mm -hmm. So Common Core really wants us to have an understanding of what we're doing. What happens when we add? Why do we add in this case? Um, why do I push the buttons in this way? Um, so Common Core is definitely bringing an emphasis on the understanding piece. Uh, it's not just about the procedures. In math, we talk about procedural fluency and conceptual understanding. Mm -hmm. So Common Core is trying to bring those two things together. And a lot of parents grew up when it was just about the procedures and they feel like, why can't my child add? I was able to add um, in this way. And now you're showing them all this strange thing, these things that are strange to me. I feel a little bit threatened because mm -hmm. I can't do this fourth grade math. Um, and it's really just getting them a little bit more conceptual understanding, which takes sometimes different strategies, different methods that is going to get us to um, that place where students can do these operations efficiently and uh, confidently, but they also know what they mean. Because a lot of us learned how to long divide, but we don't know what was happening. Yeah. Move this number here, I'm doing it. But this <laughs> and if you're a kid who doesn't know what's happening or you want to know what's happening and nobody's telling you, those are the kids that used to fall behind because they mm -hmm. had no idea what was happening. They couldn't follow the steps. The teacher had no other way to present it to them. And there's a whole generation of kids that you know, feel like they're bad at math because they couldn't follow those procedures and that was all that was offered to them. Yeah, and another thing that used to happen to me very commonly is was that um, I would have math teachers that would grade my work, but they wanted to see the process to get there. And if it wasn't the process that they taught us, then we lost points, for example, right? And that was another reason why I remember feeling just like, oh my goodness, I have to follow these procedures exactly that they were taught to me. Um, but that's super interesting too. I, and, and the reality is that remembering those procedures is hard, right? So we really need to teach our, our kiddos the different ways that we can get to solve a problem, right? And um, how to get to an answer in, in different ways, whether it's using your fingers and toes or using or how to use a calculator effectively. Um, and like you mentioned, doing what the common core state standards for mathematics is, um, is advising us to follow now. Right. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So I already finished my drink, y'all. 
Thank goodness there's one here. I think Dr. Bauer might have only... You made me talk all the time. I have a lot of dreams left to go. <laughs> She's not even... Um, what is it? A quarter left? Probably, yeah. A quarter? Same? Maybe a half. Maybe a half? Look okay. at this use of fractions. Oh! Which I approve of. <laughs> yeah, if you look at school as just the means to make you into a human calculator, you're going to be very disappointed when someone gives you a calculator because all of your knowledge is was a huge waste of time. Yeah. So it's really all about gaining the skills to solve problems, formulate problems, um, and uh, use your tools, not just calculators. Now we have people in Excel and people yeah. coding. So, um, and there's a lot of uh, tools for solving mathematics, uh, working in mathematics, you know, that goes beyond a calculator. So just really being able to use those different mathematical, logical reasoning skills in many different ways. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming to my bar. Thank you so much. I'm very happy <laughs> to have you as my first guest because she is not only amazing, but my BFF. So, <laughs> so thank you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you all on the next episode of Sip and Scholar. Bye.